0: You're trying to play court, like a Game Boy. Hit my phone, boy. Is your homeboy? Are you a lone boy? Come give me dome, boy. Got a boy with degrees, a boy in the streets, a boy on his knees. He a man in the sheets. Sheesh, it's all Greek to me. Got this boy speaking Spanish. I right? hit puppy. Baby, I don't need you. I just wanna freak you. I heard you a freak too. What's two plus two? Go, three, two, go, make a girl go crazy. Go, three, two, go, make a girl go crazy. I like big boys, itty bitty boys, Mississippi boys, and the city boys. I like the pretty boys with the bow tie get your nails did let it blow dry i like a big beard i like a clean face i don't discriminate come and get a taste from the playboys to the gay boys go and say boys you my playboys. boys baby i don't need you i don't need i just wanna freak you i want it heard you a freak too that's right what's two plus two
1: boys that you're just listening to. And this is Anna for Indigo Radio on WVEW 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Today we're talking all about sexuality education and reproductive justice, especially for adolescent youth and the health inequities that come along with that. And uh, we're here every Sunday at 1 p.m. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through uh, deepening understanding and making connections. And you can find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio, Twitter, and Instagram. Our shows will be recorded, and it will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes after the show today. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. And today, uh, we're going to talk with professors Alin Guberman and Elizabeth Salerno Valdez. Their work centers around reproductive justice and sexuality education and they also work to improve outcomes and reduce inequities in sexual and reproductive health among youth. They were working on a project together in western Massachusetts. So we're going to spend the hour with them today. I was able to conduct an interview earlier this week with them. The day that I actually conducted the interview was the day that the news broke about Roe versus Wade and so I begin the interview with asking them their thoughts on that, since both of them do work around public health and reproductive justice. So we're going to go to the first part of the interview. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Lynn and Libby, thanks so much for being on Indigo Radio this morning. And I would love to start just with you both introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your current work. And I can start with Libby. Hi folks,
2: Um, my name is Elizabeth Salerno Valdez. I I go by Libby and I use she, her pronouns. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Public Health and Health Sciences at UMass, at UMass Amherst. And my work centers around using participatory research methods to examine adolescent health inequities from the perspective of historically marginalized populations. I'm talking about racially minoritized populations, Black and Latinx populations, queer populations, LGBTQIA+, um, and, and folks that experience, who are more likely to experience housing and transportation and food insecurity. The work that I focused on has been around substance use and examining substance use and environmental risk factors for substance use from the perspective of the youth most most effective and and that was um, on the u.s mexico border and my current research looks at examining structural violence and how that relates and influences adolescent sexual and reproductive health and that's here in the northeast in massachusetts
1: Okay, great. Yeah, and that's a lot of what we're gonna be talking about today. Thank you, Anna Lynn. Hi, I'm Alin
3: Gabriam. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a professor in community health education. Uh, Libby and I are both in that program and in the School of Public Health and Health Sciences at UMass Amherst. Anna and I work together. Anna, you are a PhD student in the program, so just wanna situate that as well. Historically, my work has focused on What I term now critical narrative interventions and using arts based approaches, storytelling narrative approaches with historically excluded or marginalized communities to explore sexual reproductive health inequities. Um, Much of my work is focused on working with young parents and families, and currently Libby and I are working on the project that we'll talk about. I'm really excited to be a part of that project as well, um, which is based in Springfield, in Lynn, Massachusetts. We'll talk more about that in a bit.
1: Yeah, great. And today I want to start off just with the, the news this morning, and before we get to that community work that you're doing, in that you are both working, and some of your work is at the intersection of public health and Uh, sexual and reproductive justice. And so uh, today, according to a a leaked Supreme Court document obtained by Politico, uh, a majority of the court voted to strike down the 1973 Roe versus Wade ruling, which some people are saying they're not surprised by, but um, that is quite breaking news this morning. And, of course, Roe versus Wade protects their right to abortion. Uh, I was wondering if you could both speak to that uh, or your thoughts Uh, on that news this morning?
3: Um, I could start, if that's
1: okay. So yeah, I heard
3: that story first when I was driving early this morning. And it was, I guess, rather ironic that I teach a reproductive justice class. I can talk a little bit about what that means. But yesterday's class, our last class of the semester, focused on abortion and kind of reconceiving abortion politics. So students presented on that for the whole two and a half hours. And this was not known at that time, um, although, of course, it's been encroaching through state lawmaking. So to hear that was, even if it's even if it's expected, it's shocking. So in my class, one of the things we talk about for reproductive justice, which focuses on, there's like three kind of core tenets to reproductive justice, and then two more that are very important tenets that have been added on. One is the right to have a child if you want to have a child. And this is for all kinds of people, everyone. And so for, especially for historically excluded, Communities, which um, Libby discussed, you know, talked about some that we focus on in our work or work with, not just focus on, but work with, which is communities of color, uh, LGBTQ communities, people who are living with a disability, people with mental health issues or behavioral health issues, poor communities or low income or no income communities, unhoused or housing insecure communities. So a range of communities that traditionally have have had their reproduction extremely undervalued or devalued. Okay, so the right of anyone to have a child if they want, the right to not have a child if you don't want to, and the right to have a child in a safe and supportive environment. Those are the three tenets. And then the two additional are the right to bodily autonomy and the right to sexual and gender expression and freedom. When you think about those, all of those tenets, this Alito draft and this knocking down of Roe v. Wade works against all of those, but it also, reproductive justice traditionally has, has said we need to pay attention to more than just abortion. It's very important, but there's other things in, in people's lives that are equally as important that affect their ability to have a family, make a family, or have children or not have children in their lives. And so there has been a kind of a binary, I guess, um, around these issues that supposedly reproductive justice uh, aligned folks say we need to focus on more. And then the other side has been kind of the second wave feminism, focus on choice and pro-choice, Not to say that reproductive justice organizers, activists, researchers aren't vehemently working to address the right to have an abortion, but that there's more that's considered. Things that have been written about around striking down abortion or like what abortion or reproductive justice actually is touching on is also things like voting rights and uh, immigration. And uh, so those are two really kind of big issues right now, uh, they've always been issues, but they're, they're becoming issues again uh, with policies that are being passed or that have been passed in the past 10 years. And those are also affected by abortion, the right to have an abortion or not. And often the rhetoric around abortion is linked to those as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Libby, do you have any thoughts to add around the, the news this morning? Has someone who
2: has had a late-term abortion, this news is devastating because it just totally removes agency from people to make the right decision for themselves and for their families and where they are economically and psychologically and physically. And, you know, I've been on social media this morning and very carefully reviewing the social media post because I, I do feel so personally attacked by this. Also because I have a female bodied child who's three years old and she may not have the same rights that I did when I was her age. And that is horrific. It's horrifying. And I you know, one of the things on social media that I saw, and I'll just reiterate it here, is that this ban isn't going to ban abortion. It's going to ban safe abortion. And we're going to see a a fallout of gendered violence. It's just going to be gendered violence. And it's her it's just, you know, it's a dark day. I it's a dark day. I also did see that Planned Parenthood is, you know, they've been preparing for this and they're they're the Pro choice, pro abortion, reproductive justice. Like our people are our working, our, our, there is a united front around how to work around this or work against it, both legally and not. And we're going to figure out a way to make sure that folks have access to the choices to what they deserve and what should be, what is their right.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Libby, for all of that. And that really, I think, important point about people will continue to have abortions, no doubt. I I read somewhere uh, abortion is as old as pregnancy. Okay, that was uh, Dr. Elizabeth Salerno-Valdez that you were just listening to at the end. uh, And also Dr. Ellen Gubrium, the School of Public Health and Health Sciences at UMass Amherst. And they were s- just responding to the news around Roe versus Wade. Both of them work in public health and are also uh, working together on a project around adolescent uh, sexual and reproductive health inequities in Western Massachusetts. This is Anna. I think I forgot to introduce myself as, as um, Per Sergio, who's also in the studio. So <laughs> hi, everyone. I... I am a doctoral student at UMass and work with Alin. I am also part of the Spark Teacher Education Institute, and we just had yesterday our uh, final gathering for the semester, so congrats to our students who are halfway through their teacher training. And thanks for joining us here on Indigo Radio. We're gonna go to a song. We're gonna play Family, You and Me by Lil Naz and Travis Sparker. me. Naz family you and me and this is Anna for Indigo Radio thanks so much for joining us today we are talking all about uh, sexuality education and reproductive justice and the health inequities that come along with that especially for adolescents and we're talking with Alin Guberman and uh, Elizabeth Salerno Valdez from UMass Amherst both who, who are in public health and we're going to go to the second part of their interview. In this part, we're going to talk about what is sex ed and what does it look like in the United States and what maybe should it it look like? Moving also actually to gendered violence. I had worked for a long time at a crisis center and I was the youth advocate. And so a lot of my work was coming into schools to do stuff around healthy relationships and consent and dating violence and the reason that I would be coming in is because that was not part of their like quote unquote sex ed. And mm-hmm. so they would have an outside person coming in. And I think for many of them, they, they felt important, like consent and healthy relationships should be part of sexual health education. And so I, what I wanted to ask you is before we sort of move into the work, work that you've been doing is how, do most people in the general public understand sex ed or sexuality education, as you put it? And can you give us kind of a brief overview of what that looks like in the U.S.? Uh, one thing I want to
3: say before we start we start on sex ed is that I would refer listeners also to the work of Carrie Baker, who's at Smith College. She's been writing so much it puts out so much great public material on the right to, want to have an abortion, and has written more recently about medication abortion and um, the movement for medication abortion, both on college campuses and in communities, and you know online. That's important to check out as well. So, sex ed—it's hard to generalize about sex ed um, because the way that sex ed, um, sex rally education goes in the United States is that it is mandated or not state by state. And meaning, you know, you have to have a curriculum or don't have to have a curriculum state by state. And then by location, even by locality, I think by district, it's decided if they're what kind of curriculum they're going to implement. Some states mandate that you have to have comprehensive uh, sexuality education, some states that you have to have at least abstinence only, you know, so they vary. It varies across states. And actually, it doesn't always align with so-called blue and red states. So in Massachusetts, we don't have a mandate for sexuality education, which means some districts have a little bit of sexuality education and it's kind of scattershot. Some have maybe more systematic sexuality education and then others don't have it at all really, or they might have a health class, but don't really have sexuality education. In our area in uh, Amherst, which is always depicted as like this uber progressive place. Up until recently, we haven't really had systematic sexuality education. Well, I can't say over the time, over time but what I know, and in, in, since my kids have been in school, at least, there hasn't been anything systematic. More recently, I worked with a PhD student, Mira Weil, to, and she was at the forefront with other colleagues of hers to develop a sexuality education program called Let's Talk that's focused on K through fourth graders. And that's in a local school district nearby here. I can talk a little bit about that and the importance of that, especially around consent and other, other issues. But really, uh, sexuality education is linked to, it's linked to all kinds of moral politics and has roots, the the way the U.S. approaches sexuality edu- education has roots in Purit- puritanical thought. If you compare to the U.S. to other, especially, you um, Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands where sexuality education and Canada, um, Ontario has recently had across the province uh, sexuality education that was more progressive beyond just community uh, beyond just comprehensive sex ed, which doesn't necessarily take a positive approach to sex ed, can still take a negative shaming, stigmatizing, just preventive focus. I'll let Libby chime in and then... I can go on if you want about that.
1: Yeah, so Libby, I would love to hear if you have any added thoughts around just the general state of sex ed in the
2: U.S. Sure, Um, and this comes up in the the paper and in most of our research showing that when it is offered, it is sexuality education is not meeting the needs of the young people that, that need it the most and again we're talking about historical exclusion and so the the most of the programming is a one-size-fits-all curriculum that is not inclusive of culture cultural or localized or linguistic understandings it often takes a negative approach to sex ed which highlights all the risks associated with having sex right you don't want to get you don't want to get pregnant you don't want to get a disease and 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 less of a focus on that fact that sexuality is part of the human experience and that we all have bodies and we all have parts and and that we have to and we should understand how they function they also don't focus on healthy relationships and part of that is that in order to justify the risk, the negative approach, the approach as, a, as prevention only, prevention of sex or prevention of um, STIs or prevention of, of, of pregnancy is they use statistics that perpetuate negative stereotypes about certain groups. And so what we're finding in the research that we're doing with young people of color is that they feel targeted by those stereotypes, by by these statements um, or by the, you know, what, what their teachers and what the curricula are, are positing about their lives, about their existence, about their choices. And oftentimes, especially in spaces that are white-dominated spaces, when you only have one or two or three people of color in a classroom, um, when you hear a statistic like Latina girls are more likely to have to get pregnant compared to their non-Hispanic white counterparts, that's a target on those brown bodies in the room. And so that's very much noted in the research that we're doing and internalized, and they're very much frustrated by it. And related to that, beyond just the curriculum, the folks that teach this curriculum often do not look like, have the lived, same lived experience, speak like the folks that they are working with. And so that's another barrier, let's say, to engaging with correct with the curriculum and engaging with the programming and finally i'll just say that it's very dry and taught to the test it is not engaging it doesn't cultivate discourse or foster it's not activities based it doesn't generate critical thinking or questioning or conversation it's almost like you know you teach it it's delivered and then okay we checked a box They've been given the information, let's move on. And what we know about young people is that they wanna talk about stuff and they wanna talk about sex. And there's lots of places where they, most places they don't feel comfortable talking about sex. They're not feeling comfortable talking about their sexuality and sexual reproductive health and their bodies and their identities at home, typically not at school. Oftentimes they're relying on their peers and mostly where they're finding their information is on social media. And on the internet. And so we know that there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's also a lot of really great resources out there as well, right? But it's balancing that. And I I just, I also think that where the curriculum, the curricula and the programming and the teaching are at right now is like, is so far behind where the youth are at. Like, we have to catch up to where they are in this new technological space. Can I add a few things?
3: Yeah, go for it.
2: So one of the things that's been a a really
3: important part of the work we've been doing to the STRIVE study is, which Libby described a little bit in her introduction, which was around uh, addressing uh, structural violence as it informs adolescent sexual reproductive health and inequities. Um, But one of the key parts has been a community advisory board that's been involved in the work both in Springfield and in Lynn. And we did interviews with community advisory board members. These are all folks who are either providing services at youth or adolescent serving organizations or have received services, emerging adults who have received services or are in the community. And the CAB members have talked about who provide, and some of the people who are on the CAB do provide sex ed at schools, whether they're inside the school or outside the schools. Um, And they have talked about the lack of culture-centered approaches to sexuality education and that even with uh say youth who uh who english is not their first language are completely missed mm-hmm. by uh the current sex ed and that the sex ed the attempts to say um, sensitize sexuality education the the what do you say the bottom line i guess is just translating into spanish that's like that's the most sensitivity.
2: the most surface level yeah
3: just translation and what does that do when you There aren't any other considerations of like local cultural understandings of sexuality. And this doesn't even relate to like, are you Puerto Rican or are you someone, a white person who grew up in Springfield? Um, It relates to local cultural understandings can be even like young people's understandings of sexuality. And really important uh, what Libby was saying is about social media because TikTok and Instagram and perhaps Twitter, but I don't think that's why they use with younger, younger people, perhaps. But especially TikTok. Oh, and YouTube, not Instagram. YouTube. How important those platforms are for conveying information and for young people learning about themselves and sexuality and relationships and expectations. While there might be misinformation, it is such a important resource to be tapped and to be used and to really be researched to understand the ways that young people, I'm sure that someone in communication is doing that work but how young people are understanding themselves, communicating about sexuality. So that could be like a source for culturally centering sexuality education. It doesn't have to mean just the surface level, like translation of English or adding like, you know, the ways that folks dress or, you know, what kind of foods they eat, these like very surface level things that are usually used to sensitize curricula. So that's one really important thing that's come out of this work, just that incredible lack of cultural centering of sexuality, education, lack of engagement. The other thing is, and like a major thing, and, you know, maybe I'm biased because of this Let's Talk curriculum that we worked on K through four, but really a major theme is about like a little too late. So I have 14 year old, two kids who are 14, who are in middle school, eighth grade, and then one who's 11, who's in the fifth grade the 11-year-old received, it was part of Let's Talk in second grade, third grade, fourth grade. And the 14-year-olds were not because they were beyond those grades at their school. And to me, it's clear with the 14-year-old that even if they are like, you know, wildly enthusiastic about talking about their sexual identities, their gender identities, um, when it comes to talking about sexual relationships, reproductive health issues. They were very, they're really not comfortable talking about that. And this isn't a household, you know, where I do this work, I think they'd be comfortable. And they're like, ew, you know, I don't want to talk about that. Whereas the 11 year old, and now this is totally anecdotal. It's just my kids, but the 11 year old seems more comfortable. And what I saw at the school where we did this work was not just a change in the, in the children who were involved in the program, but really it's such an important change in the teachers who are at the school who, weren't, who were uh, trained by facilitators that Mira worked with, or Mira worked with as a facilitator, trained the teachers in this approach. And so there was such a shift in the way that teachers were thinking about uh, sexuality and sexual and gender expression, the ways the administration thought about it, the ways that parents and gar- uh, caretakers thought about sexuality and gender expression, and the possibility that young children express their gender and have uh, thoughts and, you know, feel their gender and that they also are sexual beings. Young people have sexuality and that doesn't mean, you know, sexuality is a much broader term than just intercourse. And, you know, that's a very heteronormative conceptualization of sexuality anyway. So it's really like it was, it's such a been such a cultural shift at this school for children, for teachers and and staff, for parents and caretakers who have been involved in this work. And even getting it instituted at the school was this major kind of like, it really felt like organizing activism work to do that work, to have the curriculum approved by a school committee and by the superintendent to be able to implement. And the last thing I want to mention is schools are such an important place for this work because they are one of the few socialized institutions in our country where everyone seemingly. I mean, we know this doesn't play out for sure, but all all children are expected to attend school until they're age 16. So they're all, they all have the potential to be exposed to this work and outside of, or this curriculum outside of school, there's very little that's commonly covered across, across youth. So it's a really important institution for conveying expectations, mm-hmm. gender expectations and consent, important things around relationships and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I feel like when I think back to my work when I was doing that youth work in schools is that I, I feel like we also come up against a problem of certain teachers of like, I could never talk to them about this. Like I teach math or right. I actually was just pulled into a conversation at a school here to help facilitate this conversation around dress code. And that's another uh, kind of arena where people are like I, I can't talk to that student about what they're wearing because I'm like a male teacher or whatever and we were really stressing like you have to have these conversations with kids and yeah so it, it just shows up in, in all uh, sorts of places I definitely really believe in that too of, yeah the, the public school is a place for all of this mm-hmm. and we have to be equipped as adults too around it.
3: And but also a place to challenge teachers and staff to think about critically about the ways things like dress codes are used to marginalize uh, particular students or communities of students, uh, female identified students, students of color. It's quite often um, used to penalize or really to surveil and
1: uh, and punish Mm -hmm. my co-facilitator. We were talking amongst ourselves, but then we shared a bit of how we were criticized as young people for wearing something quote unquote inappropriate. And that kind of body stuff has come with us our entire life. Mm -hmm. I always say to people, I don't think I'll ever be rid of it. And so talking about like how detrimental just even comments can be to young people in shaping how they think about sexuality and their own bodies. For sure. And
3: often to a very body negative result.
1: Louie, let me turn to you. Could you talk a little bit about the communities of of Lynn and Springfield and the study? And I'm also wondering if you could touch on, you talk about, I just want to read this around structural violence. And I'm just going to read this real quick. It says adolescent sexual and reproductive health inequities should be understood as the result of a broad set of interrelated social determinants of health uh, and as a consequence of structural violence. And so if you could talk about that
2: a little bit. So structural violence in, in the way that we unpack it is to the young people is these bigger systems that are outside of their control that have influence over their lives. So we're talking about the structures are the bigger, are the bigger picture. We're talking about education, healthcare, policing, law enforcement, access to food, access to safe housing, access to transportation. We're also talking about systems of norms. So heterosexism, um, gender and sexuality, oppression, um, classism, sexism. And when we talk about those things as an umbrella term in the ways that they can perpetuate harm against some groups over others, it's termed structural violence. And structural violence has been found to steal years and potential from people's lives. And it disproportionately affects these populations that we've been talking about, people of color, folks living with disabilities, queer folks, because the policies in place at these different structures and system in, within, within these different systems, they're not built to support those groups. If anything, they're meant to keep them subjugated. And so we work with the young people, with young people who who are, whose voices are the least likely to be heard and the least likely to be included in decision-making power.
1: Okay, hey, you're listening to Indigo Radio, and this is Anna, and we're talking all about sexual health and sex ed. Lynn was talking a lot around sex ed in the United States and co- what comprehensive sexuality education should look like. And I think it'd be, it makes me think a lot about the education that I had. And uh, I think we can all maybe reflect on what that has been like for us and, and how we could make that better for young people because uh, it certainly needs to be. We are going to take a short break, a song break, and we're going to listen to a song by Ezra Furman called Love You So Bad, and I found that song off of the soundtrack to the Netflix show Sex Education, which if you haven't listened to, I highly recommend that show. Uh, I think that they do an amazing job talking about sexuality and gender and sex and all that stuff. So... This is Ezra Furman, Love You So Bad. You know
4: I love you so bad I don't believe in love You know I love you so bad So bad You know I love you so bad Like classroom who can't do the math cause you can't see the blackboard so bad you know I've looked so bad
1: This is Ezra Furman, Love You So Bad, from the Sex Education soundtrack, the show on Netflix. And this is Anna for Indigo Radio. We're on the air every Sunday at 1 p.m. and we replay Mondays at 2 p.m. We are hoping you're having a good Sunday here in Brattleboro. And we've been spending the hour with Dr. Lynn Guberman and Dr. Elizabeth Salerno-Valdez at UMass Amherst in the School of Public Health. They're both in community health education. And they have been speaking with us today around sexual health and reproductive health inequities uh, with adolescents. They work on a project in Western Mass with the communities of Lynn and and Springfield. And we just left off with Libby talking about those communities and talking about structural violence and the need to understand that in conjunction with sexual health uh, and reproductive justice. And so we're going to go back to uh, Libby talking about this and the STRIVE study. Thanks for joining us today.
2: So the STRIVE study is looking to understand how structural violence influences, a- influences adolescent sexual and reproductive health inequities from the folks most affected. Before I go on, um, I do wanna talk about positionality and reflexivity and talk about myself as a white, cisgender, Straight passing, I am queer. That is a identity of mine that is easily hidden. I'm, you know, middle class, and I I don't live in the communities that I work with. And so I have to approach, I not I have to, I do approach and I should approach my work from a space of humility and an eagerness to learn and respect other folks and other experiences. And the part, participatory research is really meant to, like I said earlier, elevate the voices of folks who are most likely to be excluded from decision-making spaces and from sp- spaces of power. And so myself, with all the privileges that I hold that pertain to all of the, my intersecting identities, I find to me that it is my role as this person with these privileges to leverage the power that I have and the privileges that I have to district, to leverage and redistribute decision-making power, resources, and space to make sure that that space there's plenty of space for folks that wouldn't otherwise be there. And I find participatory research to be the best way to do that in research. It's really meant to upend or yeah, upend really traditional research as we know it which is very extractive in nature, like, right, we are researchers, we do research on you, participatory research is we do research with you, and you get to lead it, you get to decide from start to finish. The research question, what we do as facilitators is we, is we facilitate, is help facilitate the research process, so that might include, that will include um, capacity building around research methods, so in the case of our study, we use photo voice, which is using photography as a research method. So we teach the young people research methods like like photo voice, and then we guide them through the research process. And then so together they collect the data, they analyze the data, they reflect through a process called praxis on the findings and decide what they want to do with that data and what's important to them and how, how they want to change what, what is it that they want to change about their lives and how can they do it collectively? And how can we as researchers with the access to resources and power and, and institutions that we have, how do we leverage those privileges and those that power to make space for those folks? And so the ways that we are trying to do that in this work is create a direct line of communication between the young people and the Massachusetts Department of Public Health create youth advisory boards with the organizations that we are working with so that after we leave as researchers, there's still space and infrastructure embedded within that system, within that community organization for youth to take a leadership role if they want to. And part of participatory research, some of the findings around youth participatory research is that it builds capacity it builds leadership skills it builds public speaking public speaking skills it empow it's been found to increase empowerment self efficacy collective efficacy so the idea is that once that infrastructure is there you're going to have young people that want to take part in it you just have to create the space for them and the support for them and also most of these space a lot of these spaces especially out here in western massachusetts are white spaces the young people that we're working with are people of color, and so how do you? What is what? What can we do in the, in the creation of that infrastructure, like the youth advisory board, for example, to make it so that it's not a tokenizing experience for them, but to actually so that there's critical mass of them and that they're supported by the folks that they that are at the organization. So part of that background work that Lynn and I try to do is organizations that we have collaborated with, and right now we're collaborating with, our Black and femme-run organizations.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, I was wanting to talk to you both about that, so you led into that with the thing about the, the researcher within the community. So, Ellen, let me ask you, is going off of what Libby was just talking about, is how do you think about your role as mm-hmm. a researcher within the community? Because
5: mm-hmm.
1: for me, it's been a a learning experience and I'll continue learning and I've had differing thoughts as someone who did research as a doctoral student and trying to figure out, you know, how do I navigate all of that? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would love your your
3: thoughts on that. Sure. Um, I I take a similar perspective right now to uh, to what Libby just said about serving as a facilitator and leveraging the, the power that I have um, to work with historically excluded community members um, to support them in addressing what they'd like to change in their lives and what they think is going well and would like to keep the same. So not everything is focused on negatives in folks' lives. There's often, in you know, I'd say we both take a strength-based approach in that work. One thing, though, like just to acknowledge as well is that I do take a facilitator role right now, but... There there remain the power dynamics in place in the research, and there's also the work that goes on outside of the community that we are doing as well with a UMass research team, where we're meeting, we have research assistants on board um, on this project, work with them to draft articles and presentations and reports to present the findings, whether it's in a journal article or whether it's to the Mass Department of Public Health who's funding the study or whether it's to uh, the community advisory board members. So that work is work that we are doing and that does not always involve youth researchers in the work. Also, one thing that we have really focused on is uh, trying to create a sustainable model to some extent where... Youth researchers who have been part of a previous project are now working with us as community-based researchers in the present project. We're hoping to get more funding to keep them involved and to eventually include youth researchers or researchers in the the subsequent projects. So to keep kind of that ball rolling with involving youth researchers who have worked with us on prior studies in future studies as well. My work has gone back and forth, I'd say, with how I position myself in the work. And some of that also has to do with Professional expectations. And so when I was doing my dissertation, for instance, I was very much the researcher uh, working, even though I did community based work or community, yeah, community based work. It wasn't participatory. I was doing interviews and collecting stories and narratives from participants and wrote that up. It has shifted more and more to a participatory approach, though participatory can also be kind of a, a very strategic term to use. And some people call doing interview-based research participatory because you're involving folks in, in talking about their lives and listening to them and allowing really allowing them to tell their stories and be heard potentially even through a journal article, which who knows who's hearing that story really if it's just through a journal article. Some of my work has uh, a lot of my work has used digital storytelling, and I've facilitated digital storytelling workshops and done kind of uh, used digital storytelling as a tool for ethnography. So, um, facilitating running the workshop, but also hanging out with those who are participating in the workshop, having meals with participants, getting to know participants. It's a really important, and I'm saying participants because in this case, um, while those who were involved in the digital storytelling workshop participated in the workshop and did do some analysis around their digital stories, they were still by and large participants in the work. And they were even, some were involved in taking their digital stories, using them in community-based forums, uh, focused on like local policy making, or even going to DC and telling their story using their digital stories in work focused on dignity-based approaches for young parents i said my work focused on young parents so they had been involved in that work over time but all the same the work was organized from above by me the researcher the umass academic so there's always that power dynamic in place and it's very difficult to erode that dynamic and i'd I'd say and maybe this sounds kind of naive but we do the best we can and try to do as much as possible, more and more. I mean, what's so important is the ways that budgets are allocated in projects and who gets the funding. Is the funding going in predominantly to the university? Or is there a lot of funding going into a community organization? And to consider, well, what is that community organization about? And is that community organization still run by folks like us, white women who are middle class and are coming in from the outside to run the organization? So there's a lot of considerations in place for what it means to be participatory. The other thing that I think is really so important and has been written about, written about especially in say the anthropological literature, ethnographic work folk, focused work around ethics is relationship building with folks who are involved in the research, whether they're positioned as youth researchers or researchers, whether positions as participants or somewhere in between. and how you establish relationships, what those relationships are based on, how care comes into play, the important role of caring. And I'm writing, working on a paper right now, thinking about that. And also like how you continue those relationships or or where do the relationships go um, after a workshop has ended or after a project has, has seemingly like the data collection phase of the project has ended and either you're in between projects or moving on to the next project. So what about people who participate in the project? How do you relate to them? and do you keep supporting them and working with them and and being aligned with participants or youth researchers and you keep up with them so that's an important consideration as well that is really can be very challenging
1: uh that's really helpful i think that that's an important thing to just acknowledge i because i would agree with you i think that the the world that we live in that we can't erase those power dynamics, that's just the reality of right now of the researcher, the academy and and communities, but that there's a role for everything. Like I was thinking when you were talking about your own research as a doctoral student and and getting interviews, there is a role for all that. It's about maybe how you approach it, how you think about it. And then I remember someone once, I don't remember who it was, saying the only point of doing research is if you're working to change the world that we're in. I think that that is really important, right? Like it, it's coming from how you think about things and how approach all these, both communities and the subject matter and all of that is important. Right. We're coming to an end here. Is there anything else that you would want to add as, as someone in public health, thinking about public health, which is always important, but, but so, so, so important today and, um, and also community health, I always say I love public health because, to me, it relates to everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there any last things you'd want to say about that? Maybe what community health
3: is to you? Yeah. So uh, community health to me and public health to me, should it should be about organizing and activism. It should be about working, organizing, supporting, and working with communities, especially communities that have been um, disenfranchised, historically excluded to address issues that are important to those communities and to try to enact change with and for those communities. That's why I am so happy to be in public health and also at the same time disheartened quite often to be in public health because the way that funding goes is almost, you know, quite often, especially larger funding that could be used to push. Broader initiatives uh, to enact change is often focused at the individual level and about is, is focused on persuading people to change their behavior rather than working with folks to determine what are their needs, what they would like to see change and organizing and, you know, enacting change in, in a more community-based model. I do hold hope for public health. I just got an email from the NIH and National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities, which is uh, the institute where I tend to apply for funding and they have some really great uh, webinars and and, um, talks coming up that focus and have for a while that focus on racial justice, anti-racism, that focus on really addressing structural uh, issues that impact community health and well-being.
1: All right, that was uh, Dr. Alyn Guberman that was just ending out the show there talking about community health education, also the structural issues within uh, academia and being a researcher in the community. And we want to give a big thank you to both Alin uh, and to also Dr. Elizabeth Salerno Valdez, for spending time with Indigo Radio and all of their important work in Western Mass around adolescent health and the sexual and reproductive uh, health inequities that are happening and and trying to really work with communities in in bettering their lives. Uh, and, And for all that information on what comprehensive sex ed could look like. So a big thank you to them. They are out of UMass Amherst, the School of Public Health and Health Sciences. And we are going to go out today with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. You're the one that I want. And thank you so much for joining us here at Indigo Radio. We'll be back next Sunday. Have a good afternoon. Sandy? Tell me about it. Stud.
0: i